welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 13. And um, an excellent guest, as always, lined up this week. And before I turn it over to the conversation, I want to just uh, do my usual weekly pitch here for Counterpunch. You know, Counterpunch, I think, is really important, especially in the times that we live in. Um, we, we live in an age, as if you followed uh, the, the episode last week, my conversation with John Pilger, what, we, what he called an information age and an age in which we're saturated with information but so much of that information is part of the corporate narrative and what we do at Counterpunch is we try to pierce through that narrative. We try to bring an independent and critical perspective, one that uh, comes from the left but that is not part of the pseudo left, the pseudo alternative media, the corporate left or any of this other stuff and you can see Counterpunch time and time again standing apart from the crowd on many of the most important issues, really bringing that independent perspective that is so important. And so if you agree with me about what I'm saying about Counterpunch and you agree on the importance of defending, uh, preserving, and maintaining independent spaces, then I would highly recommend you become part of the Counterpunch family by uh, getting a subscription to the print magazine. You know, it's not a terribly large sum of money. And for that, you're going to get an excellent magazine sent directly to your house and you're going to be able to read all of the really great columns, all of the interesting and analysis that comes in that uh, every single issue. Also, you're going to be part of supporting this project. I think that's so important uh, given everything that's happening in the world, given how few spaces we in the alternative media really have. So be a part of Counterpunch, help to support it financially, get that subscription. And um, also, if you want to continue supporting this podcast, again, I reiterate the iTunes reviews are really important. Go on there, give us a positive review, spread the word about this podcast because again if you know podcasts and you follow this stuff I mean there are not a lot that I think are really uh, worth spending a ton of time on and I hope that the product that we're putting out there regularly is one of those few podcasts that you think is really worth your time and your energy so if you think so give us a positive review anyway let me take a breath after pushing all of my pushing all of my self-promotion there. I want to turn over to my wonderful guest this week, um, Jose Pertiera. He is um, really an authority on some of the most important issues in regards to U.S.-Cuban relations and in regards to some of the uh, important issues related to South, Amer- or South America and Latin America generally. Um, he has an, a wealth of experience. He was the attorney for uh, the in the Ilian Gonzalez case, which of course I think most of us remember quite vividly. He was involved in some of the most high-profile cases regarding uh, terrorism perpetrated against Cuba, but I'm going to let him uh, speak for himself. So with all of that being said, Jose Pertiera, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you. And it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, listen, we have a lot to discuss, and I want to begin with, um, well, I think, obviously, probably the most important news that we've heard in regards to uh, U.S.-Cuban relations in quite a long time. It happened just in the last few days, and that is the opening of diplomatic relations, the opening of the embassies in the U.S. and in Cuba. So, there's a lot of hype around this. You saw this on on CNN and on NBC and on all of the mainstream media. You saw this uh, this this event, the raising of the flag, and all of this. But I want to dig into this a little bit deeper. So, what is your analysis of the political significance of this opening of relations? How do you view the importance of it? Is it truly important and historic, or is this more cosmetic? 
I don't think it's cosmetic at all, Eric. I, I think it is historic. Uh, it's been 54 years since President Eisenhower, on January 3rd, 1961, broke relations with Cuba. The U.S. unilaterally broke relations with Cuba. And uh, since then, there's been a, a lot of things that the United States has done to try to topple the Cuban government. Uh, they have uh, uh, sponsored an invasion in 1961. They, uh, they have engaged in, uh, in hiring and using Cuban-American terrorists to terrorize the people of Cuba. Uh, through them, they've also used biological war uh, warfare. There's been a blockade imposed against the island, which is still in place. Um, there have been many, many things that have happened. And now you, we can see the beginning of a new chapter, a new beginning, uh, so to speak, in relations between the two countries. Uh, I think this move by the United States to uh, allow relations to occur between the two countries and to open up embassies is gives me hope for the future, but I am cautious at the same time because there are still underlying all of this the same premise that the United States thinks that it's that it has the right to try to change the government of Cuba to one that is more to its liking, and until that changes, you can never have normal relations with Cuba. On the other hand, I don't think the United States has normal relations with most countries in the world because the United States thinks it owns most of the countries in the world, especially those in Latin America. But I am hopeful that now that um, they can, the two countries can speak to one another uh, with through embassies and maybe hopefully in, in the very near future with ambassadors, with also uh, Secretary Kerry's a proposed trip to Cuba, uh, possibly next year President Obama is going to Cuba, they will be able to seal this deal, make it irreversible for any president that comes along. And with the new winds that are sweeping Latin America, uh, perhaps, just perhaps, the United States will treat Cuba with respect as a sovereign nation. Well, I think this I think those are all really important points and I agree with all of that but I want to rephrase what I said in my in my question when I said is there an element of this that's cosmetic not to say that there isn't a significance to this because of course there is what I mean to say is should we really believe that U.S. Uh, policy, or maybe more specifically, U.S. imperial policy, has really changed at a substantive level, given these changes with Cuban relations? Because there are a lot of people on the left who I think could make a quite compelling argument that the United States really hasn't changed at all with regard to its policy versus Cuba, with regards to the notion of regime change, destabilization, all of this. And so the question that I have and I want to pose to you then is, is the opening of an embassy merely a, a new phase of the same war against Cuba? Or, as you may were, maybe were alluding to, are we seeing a substantive change in policy? Well, you know, it, it, undoubtedly the premise is still the same, which is the United States thinks that the old policy has not worked. President Obama said that 
in his State of the Union speech in January of this year. He said the old policy didn't work, and that's why we have to try something new. Well, what was he talking about? What, what does he mean by the old policy didn't work? It didn't work because the government of Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, is still there. Mm -hmm. So the United States wants to try something new. And instead of bombarding Cuba with, uh, with bombs and, and uh, using terrorists uh, to, to, to try to destabilize Cuba, it is not going to bombard Cuba with hamburgers, thinking that through business they can empower the Cuban private enterprise and make those, give, with those people having power in Cuba, they will have a greater say in the future of Cuba. And they will be, if you will, people who will be acting in the interest, not so much of Cuba, but in the interest of the United States. That's the premise behind it. Yeah. Now, whether they will be successful in that, I don't think so. Because what the United States agreed to have relations, diplomatic relations with Cuba, I think because it was imposed on the United States by changes within Latin America. Had the United States not done this, for example, the summit of the Americas last year would have been an utter disaster. Mm. Um, it, you know, the, the summit in Panama, uh, the, several countries threatened not even to go to Panama unless Cuba was recognized. So things are changing in the rest of the world. Things have changed in Cuba. Uh, there, there, there's a sense that the United States has to do this. Whether that means that in the future the United States will have to change, for example, its regime change programs remains to be seen. Uh, let me let me just give you a concrete example. There's, uh, I think, thirty six million dollars earmarked for 2016 in uh, in money to destabilize the government of Cuba. Uh, the stated premise of that of those programs is regime change. Now, the United States could very easily think it, it's in its interest to cooperate with Cuba in democracy enhancing programs within quotes, for yeah. example, uh, working with Cubans, uh, the Cuban Ministry of Education to, um, to give scholarships to students, use that money in a, in a, in a more productive way. That money has to be spent. It's, it's congressionally mandated. It's not up to President Obama to suspend the program. But President Obama has presidential authority to change the nature of those programs. Uh, whether he will do so or not remains to be seen. Uh, the, the, I think there is a sense that the United States wants to tinker with them and, and change them. I noticed uh, that the uh, U.S. interest section, now embassy in Havana, has changed its, uh, its description on the Internet, and it's now downplaying the democracy uh, programs and not indicating that their regime change. It's saying that the role of the United States government is to engage in, in consular processing and, and helping Americans in the island and doing what it does in, in all the countries that were, in other words, behaving like diplomats. Um, they, they're at least changing the vocabulary. Whether they'll change their actions remains to be seen. But if they do change the, their actions, Eric, I think it will not be, be because the United States has a metanoia. Uh, and all of a sudden decides to be a good neighbor. I think it's because the neighbors are strong 
the neighbors are, and not just Cuba, Latin America, the neighbors are, are demanding respect for their sovereignty. And the United States is realizing that in order to, um, to live with its neighbors, it has to change its conduct. Well, I totally agree with that, and I want to return to this uh, question of uh, the the political and geopolitical imperative for the United States and what's really driving this change of tactics. But I want to I want to touch on this point as well. Um, we've seen not only in Cuba but really throughout Latin America over the course of the last um, well number of decades, and especially since uh, the late 1990s and the new wave of of left populism and socialism throughout Latin America that the United States is not simply engaged in regime change and destabilization through its official channels, which of course it always is, the embassies and so forth, and the quote-unquote diplomats, but also through the uh, the so-called NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, the USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy and the National Democratic Institute and the IRI and all of these groups, all of these NGOs. And the, the concern would be that as you saw in a place like Bolivia, where they had to formally kick USAID out of the country, or in Venezuela, or in Ecuador, the concern would be that the United States is now going to have additional leeway, an additional window within which these NGOs and destabilizing forces can operate. So what's your take on that aspect of destabilization, and is the opportunity now ripe for Washington to be able to use that uh, soft power mechanism? Well, you know, a lot depends on the country on which the United States is using these NGOs. Uh, Cuba, for example, will not allow the uh, National Endowment for Democracy into the country uh, to engage in programs there. Uh, I I think that um, Bolivia has gone the same route, Venezuela also. And as more and more countries are saying no to the United States and no to these NGOs, I think those programs will become impotent because if you can't get in the country to do that kind of work, then then it's useless. Uh, So, you know, I'm not so much thinking that we have to convince the United States not to use these folks for regime change and destabilization. I think we we have to tell the countries of Latin America, and I think they're realizing this more and more, is don't allow them in. Simply don't allow them to come in. Oh, there's there's no doubt. But again, for instance, the example of Alan Gross, right? Alan Gross was arrested by the Cuban authorities, and I, I've researched this story. I wrote a piece on it myself. Alan Gross is working for a private company, a private contractor, supposedly working in information technologies and internet technologies in Cuba within the Jewish community in Cuba, but the program with which he was operating was funded in this private company partially by USAID which was contracted with this private computer company. And so I I guess what I'm getting at is that people, and I know the Cuban government is, of course, vigilant about this, but those of us who are looking at it from the outside need to understand that there is this shift in tactics and we need to be vigilant about that. Sure. There's there's the privatization of public policy. You privatize jails in the United States. Uh, uh, You... Most of the immigrants that are in jail in the United States are in uh, in private prisons. And a lot of the work that the CIA used to do is now being done by private contractors. Some of the fighting is also done by private contractors. Uh, but countries in Latin America need to be vigilant about this. And in the case of Cuba and Alan Gross, for example, Cuba saw 
through the Alan Gross uh, uh, program and put Alan Gross in jail. And I think that made a lot of people reconsider their work in Cuba and say, hey, maybe it's not in our best interest to go work for this uh, organization and get paid whatever it is you get paid because you, you might get put in jail. And Cuba will put you in jail for that. And let, let, me, let me just say that if you turn it around, and analyze it in terms of a foreign government in the United States paying somebody to come in here to, to work. For, they don't even have to work in the United States for regime change. They, if they're working under the direction of a foreign power in the United States under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, you can go to jail. And a lot of people have gone to jail for that. So it's, it's, uh, it, it's a crime in the United States to work on behalf of a foreign power and not register as such and not, not report what you're doing. And it's a crime abroad too. Yeah, exactly. You know, another thing that strikes me about all of this, and I, I have to consider the timing of it is, is so interesting that at precisely the moment that the United States is making moves towards opening up and, and thawing its uh, relations with Cuba, it has gone forward with sanctions against Venezuela and actually referred to Venezuela as a, uh, a quote-unquote national security threat. Now, that language alone really serves to justify not only the narrative, but to justify the sanctions regime and some of the economic warfare and, and policies of Washington vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela. So uh, from one perspective, I think an argument could be made that the United States is really simply shifting its focus away from Cuba, which had historically been kind of the, the epicenter, the, the, the target of U.S. Uh, uh, acrimonious relations, and shifting it over to Venezuela at least partially because of Venezuela's increasing e economic importance vis-a-vis -vis its oil deposits and its uh, uh, significance on the world oil market. So do you think that uh, the, at least there's some element of the U.S. simply shifting its focus? You're, you're absolutely right, Eric. And I remember um, when uh, George W. Bush first took office, one of the things that uh, he did uh, was to come up with the regime change program and do these white papers on Cuba. And I remember reading through that first white paper on Cuba uh, about what where the dangers were for the United States and where uh, what should be done to, uh, to bring democracy to Cuba. And the paper read mostly about how to change the regime in Venezuela, not so much in Cuba, because the major premise behind it was that if you get rid of Venezuela, you get rid of Cuba and Bolivia and Nicaragua and Argentina and all of those governments that are progressive in Latin America simply because of the, the, the wealth in Venezuela, the, the oil reserves, and, and, uh, and President Chavez's leadership at the time. Uh, so the, the United States, I don't think, has changed that tune very much. They still believe that, that Venezuela is key to controlling Latin America because of Venezuela's potential economic power. I say potential because now Venezuela is facing some dire economic circumstances. Inflation is rampant in the country and uh, the price of oil went way down. At the time that President Chavez was alive, it was uh, uh, sometimes near $100 a barrel. And now it's way, way down. And so Venezuela's economic power is not the same, and its political power has diminished with the death of President Chavez. Uh, 
but still it's it's a country to contend with and the united states has venezuela in its sights and uh, that's why it comes up with those sanctions but you know the sanctions against venezuela are uh, much ado about nothing really because they they sanction um i think it was five or six government officials and yes. saying that yes. they weren't going to give them visas to come to the united states or allow them to have banking accounts in the united states and I don't think any of those six officials really want to come visit Disneyland, and and <laughs> I don't think that they want to put their money in an American bank. To be frank with you, so you know it, it's it's a lot of politicking and and um, and posturing. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't take those things very. I would agree with you on that point, although I think that the symbolic importance of them probably shouldn't be understated simply because um, what the United States is looking to do, in my in my view, is really to use the sanctions and to use the propaganda campaign against Venezuela as sort of a wedge, a, a lever against the rest of Latin America, because as Venezuela goes, so too uh, goes the ALBA, you know, the, the alliance that, uh, that Chavez initiated and that really has kind of shifted the balance of geopolitical power in the region and Venezuela diminishing in power and Venezuela being under this sort of economic warfare really I think has a ripple effect in Ecuador and has a ripple effect in Bolivia and in Nicaragua and um, so I think that part of it is just as you said I mean it's seeing in Venezuela sort of the pivot around which the region turns. You're you're absolutely right Venezuela is key and and, uh, Cuba still is the example. It's the example that the United States does not want to continue in Latin America because it tells the other countries in Latin America that even a small little country such as Cuba uh, can can be a player on the world stage and can demand respect for its sovereignty. Uh, These 54 years of of, uh, broken relations and this blockade and and all of these attempts to uh, destroy the Cuban Revolution hasn't had the effect that the United States wanted. Cuba is still there. Uh, Cuba didn't didn't have to give up anything for the um, establishment of diplomatic relations because these diplomatic relations were unilaterally imposed by the United States, and uh, and it's up to the United States to live them, to reestablish them. And same as with the blockade. The, the blockade is unilaterally imposed. What I think is going to happen in the case of Cuba is that in the United States, you see more and more businessmen that want to invest in Cuba. There's, uh, I forgot, I think it was John D. Rockefeller, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, who said the business of America is business. Yes, exactly right. And, and you know, thinking that the business of America is business, and that's the way you generate uh, not only wealth, but also empower those who have wealth in a country. The thinking is, let's do business with Cuba, let's, um, let, let's make some money, but also empower uh, Cuban businessmen in Cuba so they can have political as well as economic power. Uh, that's good in the United States for these businessmen to get involved because what will change the um, the thinking of congressmen is the businesses who want to make money in Cuba saying, this is ridiculous. We see other businesses from around the world investing and making money in Cuba and we're being shut out. Hotel chains, for example, are saying that. 
uh, hell, even Halliburton wants to be able to uh, engage with Cuba. There may be oil offshore. There's the, the thinking is there's money to be made. And so I don't think Congress is going to stand in the way of that if it's businessmen that are pushing it. In the case of Cuba, when, when these businessmen want to start investing there, Cuba has to find a way to regulate that business in the same way it has regulated Spanish investment, French investment, German investment, Chinese and Japanese investment in the island. Um, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a myth that Cuba's been isolated all these years because of the American blockade, but really the, Cuba has in, been engaged with uh, businesses throughout the world and countries throughout the world, and Cuba has diplomatic relationship with most countries in the world. If anything, it's the United States that was isolated. Certainly in Latin America, it was isolated because of its policy with respect to Cuba. And that's why uh, President Obama decided, let's have diplomatic relations. Maybe this new policy will work. Um, I don't know what will happen in the future. I, 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 I am cautious. And, you know, there's, a, there's that old joke. I'm sure you know it, Eric. Why? Has there never been a coup in the United States? You know the answer, right? No, tell me. The answer is because there's no American embassy here. <laughs> that's a, that's good. I've actually never heard that. Um, that is a perfect note. <laughs> it's that a is a joke in Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect note for us to take a break. So let's take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, I have a lot more I'd like to discuss with you. Um, so many more nuances to this issue and to really to the to the region in general. What what uh, the United States still likes to affectionately refer to as quote unquote its backyard. So uh, let's get back to the backyard on the other side of the break. I'm uh, in the conversation with Jose Pertiera. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Compañero Hugo Chávez, presente, la revolución bolivariana, presente, let's go. Yo en Caracas, el proceso va para adelante, en el Chicago, el proceso va para adelante, yo en el South Bronx, el proceso va para adelante, it goes worldwide, el proceso va para adelante. I can't front, I'm upset that they took our building, next thing the comandante, man, I know they killed them. Something going on, I gotta read the signs, something telling me that it's about that time. Time to step it up, cause I still smell sulfur Still smell the money in this capitalist culture I'm dedicating verses to my boy Jamil He out there in Venezuela, front line is real Hunts Point, New York, 2005 That's when I realized the revolution's so alive We ain't never had a president come around mine He brought oil for the poor in the wintertime He showed love to the Bronx, that's called solidarity We show love back, ain't no politician scaring me Anti-imperialist, till I go delirious The work is getting serious, that's why they keep fearing us Mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest. I gotta work like Chavez. Do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest. I gotta work like Chavez. Yo in Caracas, el proceso va para adelante. And in Chicago, el proceso va para adelante. Yo in the South Bronx, el proceso va 
Imperialismo, neoliberalismo, los bancos, los ricos, ni un millonario, Chávez fue solidario, ni Bush ni Obama llegaron a ayudarnos. No lo olvidamos más que venezolano, vuestro cruza frontera, hijo bolivariano, América Unida, como creamos ese frente, solidaridad por todo el continente. Do the mathematics, Hugo Chávez was the baddest. I gotta work like Chávez. Do the mathematics, Hugo Chávez was the baddest. I gotta work like Chávez. Yo en Caracas. And in Chicago, yo in the South Bronx, and goes worldwide. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Jose Pertiera, and we're talking about Cuba and and U.S. policy in Latin America generally. And you know, there's there's so many um, uh, aspects to all of this, and in many ways, it's changing. And quite frankly, I mean, when I was when I was getting involved in in these issues and learning about it and studying it and sort of developing my own politics here, I it was almost difficult to imagine how quickly things could change. But I mean, in the in the span of about 50 15 or 16 years, really, since the ascendance of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, things have shifted dramatically. And as you said in the first part of our conversation, Jose, you know, it is the United States that has sort of recognized this imperative to shift its policy because of these important changes in Latin America. So I want to talk a little bit about that, because right now what we've seen is that the U.S. is basically forced into a position where it can no longer exercise its hegemony by force force as it once did, uh, really going back to, let's taking it all the way back to the establishment of the Monroe Doctrine and bringing it forward to the post-World post War II era, the United States has been the imperial hegemon in the Western Hemisphere, and the changes in Latin America have really shifted the landscape, and it seems to me that the United States has now looked at countries like China and China's penetration into Latin America as one of the great threats that it sees. Russia has alliances with a number of these countries in the ALBA grouping, as did Iran. Iran made very important inroads there as well. So is the United States shifting its policy because of the global geopolitics at play? How do you see that? I I think you're you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's happening. And I'm glad that in your analysis you began with President Chavez because President Chavez's role in this should never be underestimated. He he was the driving force for the changes that were sweeping Latin America. Once upon a time, it was Fidel Castro. After Fidel Castro uh, retired from from active politics, the mantle was passed to to to, um, to President Chavez, and and uh, it, it's been a big loss that that he died, unfortunately. Uh, because the force of his personality went beyond Venezuela's borders. Yes. It, it, it influenced uh, uh, all of the countries in Latin America. I've been to Caracas a number of times, and I've, and I've also been in, in uh, international fora for, uh, where Ecuador was president, Argentina, Bolivia, and it's President Chavez's example that they all look to. 
when they exercise their sovereign rights before the United States. Um, I, I think that getting back to what you were saying about investments, the Chinese president, I think two years ago, went on a tour of Latin America right around the time that uh, that the United States was sending its Secretary of State around. And the United States kept emphasizing security. And the Chinese kept emphasizing investment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the Chinese were having a, bit, a bigger uh, effect than the United States because what these countries in Latin America need is commerce with the United States and investment from the United States regulated by themselves, not the, not the way that it was imposed in previous years. Uh, the the um, There's money to be made for American businesses in Latin America, but they have to understand that they don't own Latin America, they don't own Venezuela, they don't own Cuba, and if they respect the sovereignty of those countries, they can cooperate with each other you know, businesses uh, can can make money there, and the country where they're investing can also benefit and make money as well, and generate wealth for the population. That's really what it's what it's about, and uh, it's in the interest of the American people, uh, and it's also in the interest of Latin American people that we have a sane, respectful relationship with each other, a good neighbor policy. Quote FDR. Well, you know, that that's that's all in good, I have to say. I mean, that sounds wonderful, but the reality is that in many ways if you if you take a real close look at what the United States is actually doing, forget its diplomatic language, forget Obama's charm offensive on Cuba and and other issues, and you look at the actual substantive policies, the United States is currently engaging in uh the sponsorship and promotion of a right-wing quasi-fascist dictatorship in Honduras with uh death squads that it promotes uh, uh, using the pretext of so-called drug enforcement and anti-drug trafficking. The United States is still supporting very, very reactionary elements and, and brutal government in Colombia and in certain other parts of Latin America as well. The United States is a hand in a lot of these issues that are really fundamental to some of the problems in Latin America. And when you say that the United States travels around the region talking about security, I think a lot of people in Latin America understand that security is coded language for threats of imperial military, uh, uh, you know, action. Whereas if you contrast that with China, look, China goes into Nicaragua and wants to sponsor a canal that will revolutionize the country in terms of yeah. its economic yeah. importance. China goes into Ecuador talking about massive investments. Now, there's certainly profit in, in it for China. There, there's no doubt about that. But what China offers that the United States does not offer, in my view, is what you might call a what what the Chinese like to call win-win investment. That is to say, they're not com they're not coming around offering IMF loans. They're coming around with hard economic development, and that's something that Latin American people in general, I think, really appreciate. Well, I agree, and 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 what what has to happen in this country is that people need to understand that uh, that's the kind of policy that is beneficial to the American people. It is not in the interest of the American people to try to foment. Uh, regime change throughout Latin America and sponsor death squads and support a coup in Honduras. Uh, I remember when the, when the coup in Honduras occurred, the, at first the United States seemed to be uh, distancing itself fr from the coup. 
And then uh, something happened, and uh, Secretary of State Clinton all of a sudden gave her support to the uh, to this illegitimate government that arose after the coup against mm -hmm. President Zelaya. Uh, activists in this country need to understand and need to pressure the United States so that the United States, for the benefit of the American people, will change the manner in which it conducts its foreign policy, as well as its domestic policy. It's a battle in Latin America, and it's a battle in the United States as well. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, since we're talking about the United States and since we're talking about all of these issues, let's just let's just focus our, our thinking here on this upcoming election. Um, the presumptive Democratic candidate, no matter what people uh, in support of the, you know, the quasi Messiah Bernie Sanders might have to say about it, it's quite likely and I think pretty much a shoe in that it's going to be Hillary Clinton. Now, Hillary Clinton is a central player in that coup in Honduras in 2009. I mean, she was involved. Involved in fomenting that and in providing the diplomatic and the political cover that ousted Zelaya and that normalized this uh, this right wing reactionary government of the um, well, for lack of a better term, of the bourgeoisie in Honduras. And I mean, she simply leaned on her good buddy Lonnie Davis and Bennett Ratcliffe and some of these other Washington heavy hitters who went around and basically did what the United States has done for decades, and that is provide the political support for a right wing regime change. Now, do we really believe that the United States is going to change its tactics with a Hillary Clinton presidency or, God forbid, a Jeb Bush presidency, I'm skeptical. Well, I'm skeptical, too. I'm not a big Clinton supporter. Um, I, I'm not sure she's a, as much of a shoo-in as you seem to indicate because uh, I think there's a lot of people that are tired of the Clintons and there's a lot of people that are tired of the Bushes. Uh, the problem is there doesn't seem to be, yeah. at this point, an alternative to um, to Hillary Clinton, but it's early. It's early, and people you know, have a habit of coming out of nowhere in the presidential race, um, especially if uh, she doesn't come out as well as uh, people hope she'll come out in um, in Iowa um, and in New Hampshire. So it, there, there's still a, a long way to go here. Um, in the Republican um, Party, Bush is not as strong as uh, Bush supporters uh, would like to think either. Um, there's a, you know, Bush uh, next to Donald Trump looks like uh, Lincoln. <laughs> so, uh, but really, the the support in the Republican Party seems to be behind Trump and not behind uh, Bush. At least the base, the establishment, would like Bush because the establishment knows that Trump. Uh, stands a snowball's chance of hell of winning the the White House, but he stands a you know not just not Trump so much as uh, some of these others like Marco Rubio they stand a chance of winning the Republican nomination to be frank with you because the base is so right wing so extremist. Well, but this is uh, but this is the point, isn't it? But that's the point, isn't it? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just that's the point, isn't it? Though, because it's really not about these individuals. It's 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 about these policies that are really quite seamless. I think part from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. In many ways, it's one corporate party with a corporate imperialist agenda, especially with regard to Latin America. And you know, I don't. It's not that I want to come off as cynical necessarily, but whether it's Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Scott Walker or 
I mean, God forbid, any any of the other um, people who are coming out of the Republican Party, I don't know that the policy is necessarily all that different in terms of its substance. Well, you're right that it's a corporate party, the Republican Party, and the Democrats also have a great deal of support from corporate America. On the other hand, there there are some differences, and you have to recognize those differences. I, I, I don't think, for example, that George W. Bush would have engaged Cuba in diplomatic relations. I don't think George W. Bush would have returned uh, those the three remaining members of the Cuban Five to Cuba and exchanged them for Alan Gross. Uh, I think those things were done under President Obama. Uh, I, I don't think that, uh, that uh, the Republican Party would have approved a program such as DACA for students, uh, um, in the undocumented students in the United States to get work permits. So th- there are some differences, uh, but you're, you're right. If you get to the, if you go to the root of the thing, the, there's not much difference. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit with the time that we have remaining here, and um, I want to talk ab- about some of your experiences because you know there are uh, elements to this U.S. Uh, Cuba relationship and U.S. Venezuela relationship that, uh, especially younger people who might be listening to us, might not um, fully appreciate. So, if can you tell us just a little bit about um, the court cases that you were involved in? I mean, I know that it's complicated and there's a long history to it, but just to give a, a quick taste of that, um, you know, especially with regard to the Cariles case and what that tells us about how the United States has treated Cuba, how the United States has acted, and um, so that people really understand just how important the history of all of this is. Well, it's it's curious, and it, it, it also allows us to see some of the subtle differences between the Bush administration and the Obama administration, but also the sameness of both of them. In the case of Luis Posada Carriles, the case began uh, really in in the year 2005, the legal case. But Posada Carriles has a long history which preceded 2005. 2005 is when he came to the United States. But uh, he was the CIA's man in in Latin America beginning in in the 1970s. And he was sent by the CIA, this by his own admission. I'm not just speaking off the top of my head here. He admitted this in, in court papers that were filed in federal district court. Um, he, um, he, everything that, that he did in Latin America, he did in the name of Washington, said his lawyer, Arturo Hernandez, who likes to be called Art Hernandez for some unknown reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Art Hernandez admitted that his client worked for the CIA for over 25 years. Um, now, Posada Carriles was responsible for blowing up a civilian airliner with 73 people on board, including virtually the entire youth fencing team of Cuba, young people, men, young men and young women with uh, medals on their chest. who They had just won all of the medals available for the fencing competition at the Pan American Games in Caracas. They won all the gold, all the bronze, all the silver medals. And uh, they were wearing them when they got on the plane. And Posada Carriles um, uh, and uh, another Cuban terrorist by the name of Orlando Bosch used two Venezuelan hitmen to place two bombs on that plane. And uh, the plane exploded and everybody died, including a little nine-year-old girl from Guyana named Saurina. 
Um, there was even a pregnant fencer on the team from Cuba who also perished. Um, the Posada Carriles was put on trial in Venezuela and he escaped. Uh, he tried three times to escape. The third time he succeeded. And he appeared only a couple of weeks later in El Salvador um, working for the Central Intelligence Agency as the, the point man for the Iran-Contra operation. In other words, he was the guy responsible for making sure that the Contras got their weapons. Uh, now, if you look, you, you've looked for jobs, I'm sure, Eric, in your lifetime, and it takes a, a while to get a job. Oh, People no check doubt. references. <laughs> and this guy, you know, he was on the, on the Interpol wanted list. He was uh, wanted for 73 counts of first-degree murder. He escapes from prison, and two weeks later, he's working for the CIA. I think it's harder to get a job at the 7-Eleven that quickly. Um, so <laughs> he had friends in very, very high places. He, he, he also became the key security um, consultant to uh, Vinicio Cerezo Arevalo, one of uh, the presidents of Guatemala responsible for many human rights violations there. He, he advised the Salvadoran death squads. He uh, led a campaign of bombs against Cuba, placing bombs in, the, in, in some of the most emblematic hotels and restaurants in the island. Uh, a, a, um, an Italian businessman by the name of Fabio Di Cielmo was murdered. He admitted this to the New York Times in 1998 uh, in an interview that was conducted by Ana Luisa Bardach um, when, he was, when he was in hiding. He admitted that, that he was the, uh, the, the mastermind behind that operation. Um, then in 2000, he tried to kill President Fidel Castro with C4 explosives in a university auditorium in Panama. Uh, so, you know, this guy has a long history of terrorism. He's sort of like the Osama bin Laden of Latin America. And he then in 2005 tried to do what uh, most terrorists like to do, which is retire in Miami. And so he came in a yacht um, with his buddies to uh, Miami. And uh, the, he, he gave a bizarre press conference in Miami where he virtually dared the United States to uh, put him in jail. And this was during the Bush administration. We, we filed um, a um, request for extradition on behalf of Venezuela, trying to get the U.S. government to, uh, to extradite. We presented evidence that, he, that there was enough probable cause to... Uh, to get him extradited. There was an arrest warrant for him. He, his uh, trial in Venezuela was suspended because you can't have a trial in absentia in Venezuela according to Venezuelan law. And uh, the United States ignored our request for extradition. When Obama came in, what they did was they did put him on trial. But they put him on trial not for murder and not for terrorism. They put him on trial for lying for lying on an immigration form uh, where he said he was not involved in any human rights violations or murder um, when he had admitted this to the New York Times. And um, there was a four-month trial in El Paso on that issue, and, um, and, he, was, uh, and he was acquitted of lying, despite the, the tape recordings of him admitting to all of this. And... Uh, and he's now living footloose and fancy-free in Miami. Him and a bunch of other Cuban terrorists that are responsible 
for acts of terrorism against Cuba over the years, people who were trained by the CIA and protected by the CIA. Um, and uh, it, it shows you that the so-called war on terror that the Bush administration and the Obama administration have fought over the years is a war that they're fighting a la carte. Yeah, that's and and that really is the central point of all of this and why I wanted to bring this up because what we're really getting at here is not simply that the United States is um you know using its influence to try to change the regime in Cuba. The United States which has called Cuba a quote-unquote state sponsor of terrorism for years and years and years has in fact itself been the greatest state sponsor of terrorism and not just directed at Cuba but directed against many countries around the world, but Cuba is in in many ways a special case. And so as we're talking about quote-unquote normalization of relations with Cuba, I wonder exactly how the families of all of the people who were killed by Cuban terrorists supported by the CIA and the United States, whether they feel that there can ever be any normalization, whether they feel that there can ever be any uh, uh, restitution or reconciliation with a country that has never apologized or even admitted its role in any of this well uh, I there's a great deal of skepticism on the other hand there's optimism that things can get better not optimally but better Uh, one of the things that uh, that the United States needs to do to truly have normal relations with Cuba is to return the Guantanamo territory to Cuba it belongs to Cuba. It does not belong to the United States. If they want to have a military base somewhere, they can put it in Mississippi if they want. Mississippi belongs to the United States, but Cuba does not. Uh, the United States has, through the years, uh, complained about so-called human rights violations uh, in Cuba and the failure for of, the, of Cuba to respect due process. But I'll tell you, Eric, the only place in Cuba that tortures prisoners and does not give prisoners due process is in Guantanamo. Yep. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of the conditions that Cuba has put forth. You, you know as well as I do that uh, it's not something that the United States is going to return quickly. On the other hand, there's historical precedent for the return of foreign territory to a foreign country by the United States. Uh, it happened in Panama. Uh, it's going to take many years. We may not live to see it, but maybe our children will, where Guantanamo has once again returned to Cuba. Yeah, and I think that there's I think that there's another um, question that needs to be raised as well. And you know, I've spoken about this with a with with a couple of friends of mine, including one who has spent a significant amount of time in Cuba. And you know, I asked this genuinely, uh, you know, without having any preconceived notion about it. I wonder. The young people in Cuba today, um, there's always a, a, a cultural draw that capitalist countries, in the United States especially, is able to influence the thinking of young people who are usually one or two generations removed from the hardcore of the revolution. You're thinking about uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, you know, those those young people who were born after World War II, who came of age in the 60s and the 70s, who in many ways were anti-Soviet and pro-Western, a lot of them were, um, you know, they were they felt closer to Western capitalism than they did to the communist revolution of 50 years 
earlier. I wonder to what extent has that sort of mindset uh, trickled down in Cuba, the young people especially um, who are thirsty for, you know, consumer goods and, and, and American and Western trends and being able to travel and being able to integrate with the Western capitalist world. Uh, is that having an impact on the politics here? Is the Cuban government in some sense looking forward to an up-and-coming generation which is not going to accept being as isolated as the previous one has been? Well, I think that's exactly right, and that's why the Cuban government decided a couple of years ago to empower the private sector. Cuba was probably the most communist of communist countries because everything was produced by the state, even bread. I don't know who told them that, uh, this, that it's the business of a state to produce bread, uh, <laughs> but uh, everything was being done by state enterprises, and frankly, the, the economy of Cuba has not been very strong, in part because of the blockade, in part because of bad economic policies. And the, the thinking is, let's, let's uh, uh, set some people loose in the private sector and, and let them generate some wealth. There's right now 500,000 employees, of ex-employees of the state, who are now engaged in private enterprise in Cuba. And, and young people, you know, they want what everybody wants in the world. I mean, they, you, you know, con, there's some consumer goods that are no good, but there are other consumer goods that are pretty good, and you, and, and you do want them. Uh, uh, you talk about Internet and computers. I mean, in today's day and age, a computer is like a book. Um, in back in in uh, in the old days, you need it for uh, um, for your own development and for business and so forth. And the salaries in Cuba are pretty pitiful. Uh, people are making four hundred, five hundred pesos a month, and that's about twenty, thirty bucks, and that's not enough money. I mean, with with the kind of economy that exists in Cuba and the and the subsidizing of certain products, you can get by, but you know, it's not very well. Yeah. And you can't buy some of the things that you need. And young people are tired and they, they want that. And, and there are a lot of young people that want to leave and have left. And I think Cuba has to address that independently of um, the blockade and independently of its relationship with the United States. Internally, it has to face that. Um, the, the, the dangers uh, for the Cuban Revolution are not outside. They're not in the United States. The dangers are internal. Um, they, they have to be able to, to generate an economy that will benefit the people and raise salaries so that people can, can buy the things that they need without, uh, without having to ask their relatives in Miami to send them money. Yeah, and the other point that I just want to make quickly, and I know that we're running out of time here, but, you know, one of the things that um, I think is inescapable is the fact that uh, Cuba really was the victim of historical circumstances. I mean, the collapse of the Soviet Union 25 years ago really left Cuba sort of, uh, you know, adrift economically. And although they survived, they, they have been surviving in, let's say, uh, sub conditions. I mean, the self-sufficiency programs and all these other things that have really kept the economy going, they're, they're, they're not sustainable in terms of the long run, in terms of economic growth or anything like this. And so I wonder, do, would you agree then that opening up Cuba internationally and opening up especially to a warming of relations with U.S. business interests, is this, is this essential for Cuba's survival and for the survival of Cuba as we know it? 
I think essential to the survival of of the Cuban Revolution is that the economy of Cuba improve. And the economy of Cuba will only improve if the private sector continues to to get stronger. And I think that's something that the Cuban Revolution recognizes. The Cuban leadership right now is uh, stimulating the private sector precisely to generate wealth so that salaries can be raised. Whether they can do it um, or not remains to be seen. I think part of the uh, uh, of the thinking behind U.S.-Cuba relations and the normalization of these is to be able to enjoy the benefits of American investment and trade with the United States. <clears throat> right? Excuse me. Right now, it's very tough for Cuba to compete in the world market because if they have to trade with countries that are far away, it costs far more money to bring in products to Cuba from China and some of these other places because of shipping costs. And the blockade impedes a lot of normal business with Cuba. And also the attempts of regime change on the part of the United States has made the government of Cuba very paranoid uh, for security reasons on things like Internet. And, you know, in today's day and age, Eric, you cannot compete business-wise in the world unless you empower uh, the, the, the people of your country with Internet. Most business is being done electronically now. And, and, you know, in Cuba, we still have situations where people have to stand in line to pay their telephone bills, for example. It's it's, it's outdated system, and it's very, very difficult to generate wealth with that. Uh, I think it, the thinking also is that for many years, Cuba relied on the Soviet Union for subsidies. And then after that, for many years, the Cuba relied on Venezuela and President Chavez and oil. And the, the idea behind all of this is to make Cuba self-sufficient through trade with other countries, normal trade with other countries, including the United States. Absolutely. Well, um, we're we're out of time, but I want to thank you again for coming on the program because there's so many there's so many nuances to this issue, and I I, I really appreciate your perspective. Again, listeners, uh, Jose Pertiera, you should uh, uh, I mean you know you heard it here. He's got he's got some of the best uh, analysis on all of these issues. He's a contributor to Counterpunch. Um, he's also one of the top attorneys in the United States and consistently ranked that way by uh, by by organizations here in the. US, his website, josepertiera.com. Jose, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric, for the invitation. I really enjoyed talking with you. Bye-bye.